may be seated. Our sermon text today is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. You'll recall last week we took a look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In this week's text, Paul shows us how this fruit is born out in the life of the church, primarily looking today at gentleness, self-control, and love. But we will see, even through looking at these traits, that, that the rest of the fruit of the Spirit is there as well. Bear this in mind as we look at Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. But before we do that, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word given to us that we might know you. We thank you that it is no ordinary word, but it is living and active. It is powerful. It is able to accomplish things. We pray it would indeed accomplish things here today. May it help us to see you more clearly. May it help us to have hearts that are moved to love you more deeply. May it in turn strengthen us so that we might walk more faithfully with you. May we see the reality that we are bound not only to you, but through our common union with you, we are bound together. May it do all these things through the power of your Spirit working in us, not because we have earned anything, but by your grace alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. This is the inspired word of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. But what we have here today as we look at these first five verses of Galatians 6 is a passage about life within the church. It's important for us to realize if we're going to talk about life within the church, what exactly the church 
is. We need to realize that the church is a peculiar organization. It is not merely a club or a social fraternity or sorority. It is not merely a service organization. The local church is to be a visible manifestation of what we might call the invisible church, that is, the body of Christ. So when we talk about being Christians, we need to realize that what we're talking about is is not just a self-designation, right? It's not just that we're a group of people who, who marked off something on the application, right? We didn't just check that box. Yes, I am a Christian. We're not just people who have made a decision at some point that that's what we would call ourselves, or even that's what we believe. We are those who God has called and set apart to be his children from beyond the beginnings of time. And as such, we are to live as he determines. And that's why we turn to his word. We turn to his word so that we might hear his voice, so that we might heed his direction. For it's not a matter of us making up the rules as we go along, but rather us turning back to him who would direct us all the way. And it's interesting what the first thing is that the Apostle Paul says here to us in his statement beginning in verse 1. Brothers, it's the very first word he says. Let's just stop there and camp out for a moment. Don't worry. We're not going to camp out on every word. But the first word, brothers, reminds us that we are siblings with one another in Christ Jesus. We are those who have been adopted by God through Christ Jesus, his son. Now, it's not talking about everyone here. It's not saying this about every human being who exists. Paul is specifically talking to those who are in the church, who have trusted in Christ Jesus, whose faith has been placed in him, who have come to realize salvation by God's grace through faith, not through works, so that no one would boast. He's not talking about some kind of universal brotherhood of man that we all experience. He's talking about a very specific subset of people. The people who are his adopted children. We are all, everybody, created in the image of God. Yes. As such, we are all, every last person of inestimable worth. All worthy of great dignity and respect. But... For those who are in Christ, we have a special status. We are adopted by God. We did nothing to deserve this. We need to remember that. It's not saying we're better than people who aren't, because that's not the case. Right? The picture is that of, of people being adopted. Think of, of yourself. Let's say you and me, we're, we're in the orphanage. We're there with many others. And along comes God, and he, he says, you, and you, I'm taking you with me. I'm making you my children. If 
you and I are adopted by God at that point. We've done nothing to deserve that. We've done nothing to earn that. Certainly nothing more than the other people that he didn't adopt. It's not saying anything bad about them that he didn't adopt them other than he did not choose them. He did choose us. And so as a result, through nothing we've done, through no value that that we've brought to the table, we are now part of God's family, his adopted children. And the question that Paul is addressing here is this, how do we live out life in the family of God? What are the house rules, as it were? How do we relate to one another? Well, he says in verse 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, well, that's an interesting place to start. If anyone is caught in transgression, anyone And again, remember, he's talking here to and about believers, right? He's not talking about if there's anybody out there in the world that's sinning, this is what you should do. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about believers within the church. He's saying if any one of you is caught in transgression. I think we spend far too much time whining about the world's sin and not enough time weeping over the churches, right? We, we look out at the world, and oh my goodness, look at, look at Hollywood and all the sin that is involved there. Look at Washington, D.C. and all of the sin that is involved there. Look at the world around us pressing in against us. Oh my goodness, they are so terrible. And we very conveniently neglect to look to our own hearts and to look at our own lives and to look to the family of God. We, we look past our sins and look at what we consider to be the more egregious sins of the world, but Paul tells us here that we are to look at the church. It says if anyone is caught in any transgression, it's not talking about catching somebody in sin, that we, we I caught you doing that yesterday, no. When it talks about being caught in sin, it's more like being caught in a trap, right? The idea is that sin has caught us. If anyone is is caught, is, is ensnared, is captured by sin, the idea is that, that sin has overcome you. It has overtaken you. Right? We've used in the past weeks this metaphor of, of walking. We talked about walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. And the idea is, is one of walking... And sin has kind of caught up to us, overcome us, or perhaps jumped out from behind a tree and pounced upon us. It has caught us. So that now in our transgression, we're walking in the flesh as opposed to walking in the spirit. It's not talking about habitual, willful sin. It's actually, the language is such, it's it's talking about one who is is walking with the Lord, who wants to walk with the Lord, but, but is overcome by sin. That happens to us often, doesn't it? Where, where we're trying to walk with God and we kind of look up and all of a sudden we're in sin. Didn't mean to, didn't choose to, but all of a sudden it's there. Now that's not to relieve any responsibility from us. We are 100% responsible for all of our actions. If you have sinned, you are to blame for it. And yet the reality is sometimes it does sneak up on us. We need to realize that this can happen. We need to be aware of it and and guard our hearts as a result. We need to be paying attention. Think of 
the idea of a, of a, a deer hunter up in his blind and you're the deer, right? That might not be the area you want to walk around in. And so we need to be aware with our hearts, guarding our hearts in the same way. But this, we'll come back to that kind of, that part of the idea here in a minute. But, but first, let's, let's realize what Paul is saying, that if anyone is overcome by sin, anybody is caught in sin, is entangled in sin, he has a word for us as to what we are supposed to do here. He says we should restore them. Restore them. The Greek word there is katartizo. And it's really interesting to look at this word katartizo and see how it's used throughout the New Testament. We find it in Mark 1 where Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. That word mending is the same word as restore here. The idea, right, it's broken. The nets weren't going to function anymore properly because they were, they were torn, they were broken. And so they had to mend them. They had to restore them to their former status. They had to bring them together and fix them. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. That idea of being united, being brought together. Being brought together and connected is the same word as being restored. 1 Thessalonians 3, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. That supply what is lacking. Right? There's something missing. There's something, something wrong here. We want to bring into the equation what will fix it, what will make it right. 1 Peter 5 speaks of how God has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, who will restore, the New American Standard Version says, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Right? The idea of perfecting, making it right again, something that is wrong. Luke 6, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Fully trained. Again, see, see, we're starting to see all these different aspects of this word and how they bring them together. Basically, the idea being that we are, we are being equipped or fixed or trained or perfected. That this is what we are to do when somebody else is in sin. We're supposed to come to them in this way. And I, I was thinking about it. It's kind of like, let's say, if we wanted to use an imagery, if we had a bone that was broken, right? Because part of the body is broken here. That's the idea. We're members of one body, and, and one part of the body is broken. And so we need, to, we need to fix it. We need to perfect it. We need to mend it. We need to make it right. We need to perfect it. What would we do if we had a broken bone? Well, we, we'd go to a doctor and the doctor would set the bone and perhaps put a cast on it, right? And so, so in the process of setting it, it it's, it's hopefully going to make it right. We don't just say, well, you got a broken bone, it's not going to be right, so we'll, we'll just amputate, right? We don't just, that's not the first thing we think to do. Furthermore, we don't just say, well, it'll get better on its own, don't worry about it, whatever, it's fine. You know, I've actually, my grandfather, if you look at a picture of my grandfather uh, throughout his life, every picture, his arm is bent like this. 
It's because when he was a child, he actually did get a broken bone, and they didn't get it healed up right. It healed up wrong, and the rest of his life, he could never straighten his arm out, right? That's what happens. If, if we don't fix things that are wrong, it causes problems down the road. And so the idea here is that we need to fix those things that are broken within the body. There's a responsibility there. But, but how should we do that? Well, sometimes it is painful to fix these things, right? It's possible if you have to, sometimes you've heard of how it started to heal and you need to break the bone again in order to set it right. And that, that can be painful, I'm sure. And yet, sometimes it's what's required. In Proverbs we read, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Right? Sometimes pain is involved. We have to say, say or do something that might bring immediate pain to somebody that they might have long-term benefit. That is right. And yet, while that is true, don't we want and hope that the doctor who is setting our arm will do it in the most gentle way possible to accomplish it? We don't want him to just say, well, sometimes it's painful, so I don't care if it's painful. No. We want him to say, okay, sometimes it's painful, but I think this time we might be able to do it without it hurting quite as much, right? I'll go to that doctor. And so it is when we're dealing with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be as gentle as possible while still being faithful. And who is it that should do this exactly? It doesn't say the pastor should go do this. It doesn't say the elders should go do this. It says you who are spiritual, right? We've just talked about the Holy Spirit, and how the Spirit is to bear fruit in our lives. If we are in Christ Jesus, then we are spiritual. That's, that's what it's saying. It's saying you, the members of the body, it's actually you. It, the you here is actually plural. You, the members of the body, should do this. It calls to mind the question that Cain asked of God. Remember after he had murdered Abel, and God says, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. We're not just responsible for ourselves as individuals. We are responsible for one another, that we might encourage one another, that we might, might lift one another up, that we might support one another, and yes, at times, that we might correct one another. But it should be done in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness, sometimes... Sometimes, you know, we can motivate people with, with harsh words. I think of a, a, a football coach or a basketball coach that might yell at you and might motivate you by doing that, but that's not what the Lord calls for us here. When we're restoring others, that's not a screaming in somebody's face. That's not reprimanding them with a haughty glare and, no, it's in a spirit of gentleness, he says. And true gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So too is self-control. Keep watch on yourself, he says, lest you too be tempted. It's interesting. Whereas the you that is supposed to uh, do this, the you that is supposed to reach out to others, the you that is supposed to be active in restoring others was, was plural there in verse 1. But here he says, lest you, too, singular, 
you too be, be tempted. He's brought it down to a very personal level, right? It's the responsibility of all of us to work in the restoration of those who have been overcome by sin, but he wants to make it very personal as he says this, but you, each individually, be careful that you are not tempted because like we said before the, the, about the, the deer hunter up in the blind, we are the deer, the same way perhaps to use a better, more biblical illustration would be that which Peter uses in 1 Peter 5 where he says to be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We need to be on guard. We need to protect our hearts because he is seeking to devour us. So if you are prone to covetousness, maybe you shouldn't go on a tour of million-dollar homes. right? If you are prone to lust, don't watch movies and TV shows that, that stoke that fire within you. We need to guard our hearts so that we don't fall into sin. And that's a danger, isn't it? When we're, when we're looking to restore somebody else, we might fall into sin because we might fall into the same sin that they are in if we're kind of wading into that situation. It's also dangerous that, that if we are trying to restore somebody in their sin, we might fall into the sin of pride, right? Because we're thinking, you know, here's somebody who's, who's struggling. They're having troubles. My goodness, they're sinning in this way. I'm going to wade into this and save the day because I'm far more spiritual than they are. I'm so much better. I don't struggle with that. I'll save the day. I'm Superman. I can do this. I think that's probably the majority of what Paul's talking about here, where he says to guard your heart, where we need to, to, to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's easy to be tempted into pride when we're helping somebody else. It's easy to, to pat yourself on the back and think how good you are when you're helping someone else. And sometimes those who, who know the most, who are who we might think are the most spiritual, actually end up being the, the least humble and the least gentle, right? And, and, and turns out that maybe they're not as spiritual as we thought they were. And maybe this is why oftentimes, if I've seen studies, and I looked this up, just kind of looking anywhere from, from 72 to 85% of people who aren't church attenders say that, one of the most prominent thoughts they have about the church is that it's full of hypocrites, right? We're talking anywhere from three out of four to four, you know, four out of five, or almost, almost nine out of ten. This is what people think about the church. You know why they think that? It's because it's true. Oftentimes, the church is filled with hypocrites. We, we tell people to live one way, and then we get entangled in the same sin that we say they shouldn't. We need to be humble. We need to realize that there is a temptation, that there is a, a, an opportunity for us to sin as well, and we need to flee from that. We need to exhibit self-control, self-control that, that we are not able to exhibit on our own, but that we can exhibit through the power of the Spirit that dwells within us. That is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. We need to be reminded of Christ's selflessness and let ourselves become more selfless as well, mirroring his humility through his Spirit 
dwelling in us. But what is it to think in a more humble way, a more humble, less prideful way? Well, it is to love. It is to love. Once more, a sign of being spiritual, right? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, I'm going to ask you, just honestly, just, just be honest with yourself right now. Think about it. If somebody came to you and they were speaking in the tongues of men and angels, and, and they had prophetic powers, and they understood all mysteries, and they had all faith so much that they could move mountains. Wouldn't you think that they were pretty spiritual? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that's, wow, that's pretty impressive. But Paul says here, if you could do all of that and more, but you don't have love, you are nothing. Love one another. And we exhibit that by bearing one another's burdens, verse 2. It's not just a matter of putting up with one another, right? He doesn't just say, you know, tolerate one another while you're here. You know, because your members are the same body. You've got to live with one another, so, so put up with one another while you can. That's not what he's saying. It goes way beyond that. Bear one, another, one another's burdens. Live with one another in such a way that you support one another so much that, that when one person is having a hard time. You will support them. It, it follows the pattern of the Lord again, who, who has told us, cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ Jesus has borne our burdens on Calvary's cross. He has taken our sin upon himself, the filth of our sin, the curse of our sin, the pain of our sin, the penalty of our sin, and he bore it on Calvary's cross for us so that we might have salvation, that we might have forgiveness, that we might have fellowship with God as our Father, that we might have all of this and more. He has borne this burden, and so too we as the body of Christ, have you ever thought about what that actually means? If we are the body of Christ, his spirit dwells in us, and we act out Christ-likeness. We, we are the visible manifestation of Christ on this earth while he is gone. We are linked one to another, and Christ has told us a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and so bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ is quite simply this, love, 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 right? He was asked, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The whole law comes down to that, Jesus says. Love God and love your neighbor. All of the rules, all the details, all the different things you should do, it boils down to that. Love God and love your neighbor. Love, love, 
love. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What he's saying here is that we sometimes, in our pride, like I said, tend to think we're awfully good, but he says we're deceiving ourselves if we think that we in and of ourselves are truly something. But each one tests his own work, it says in verse 4. And his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. I think what he's saying here is quite simply this, right? What we tend to do is we, we look to our neighbor and we see that they're really rotten. And so then when I'm only mostly rotten, I think I'm pretty good. Right? He says, don't look to your neighbor to find your point of comparison. Just look at yourself. Realize that you're rotten. Right? Compare yourself to Christ Jesus and his holiness, his perfection. And realize how rotten you are and don't despair at that point, but realize that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can still serve the Lord. I can still honor him. I can still help others. I can, I can restore others through the power of Christ in me as his spirit dwells in me. I can, I can walk with Jesus. I can relate to God as Father. I can be the person he wants me to be by his power. My works don't save me, but they do testify to the truth that I have been changed, that, that I am in Christ Jesus, and therefore I am a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so, each will have to bear his own load, he says. Right? Each will have to bear his own load. We'll have to look at how, how we have done. We'll realize that we've fallen short. We'll realize that we can't save ourselves, we'll realize that we are doomed on our own, but we realize that as broken and fallen and sinful as we are, that Jesus is greater yet. For no matter how much we have sinned, we can't outsin the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has poured out his grace upon us that we might have salvation he has poured out his grace upon us that he might be the foundation of his church. He has poured out his grace upon us that he might be an inspiration or a motivation to us. He has, he has poured out his grace upon us that he might be our example and that he might be our, our power. And through his spirit, we might live the life that he has called us to, a life of gentleness a life of self-control, and a life of love. So let us correct one another and encourage one another and support one another until the Lord returns. Let us long for that day. And let us prepare our hearts to rejoice for that day when it, when it arrives. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, that you've not left us in our sin that you don't leave us in our sin. We thank you that you have given us a body to be members of. We thank you that you have not only encouraged, but commanded us to gently and humbly and lovingly restore one another when we are caught in sin. 
Help us to do this, Lord. It is a hard thing. It is so much easier for us to just, just turn a blind eye to it, to just turn away from it, to not get involved, to say it's none of my business, but, but it is our business, Lord. You have made it our business. And so we ask that you would help us to be faithful in this. Help us to walk faithfully with you, and when we stumble, help us to humbly receive correction from one another. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord.